This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Welcome to Plato's Cave, a Triple R Films criticism show and podcast. I'm Paul Anthony Nelson, and joining me in the cave tonight are Roaring Emma Westwood <laughs> and Rampaging Cerise Howard. Mm, I'll try out. Uh, rampage, to give rampage, voice to that. rampage. Yeah, thank you, Emma. <laughs> that was very helpful and very illustrative, I'm sure, for our audience. <laughs> It's a quiet rampage. Yeah. It's internal. I like it. Uh, (laughs) On tonight's show, we'll see if Netflix's new horror film, The Perfection, lives up to its title. Uh, uh, For our retro title this week, we're going to check out Agnes Varda's second film, Cleo from 5 to 7, in anticipation of the Viva Varda season coming to the Australian Centre for the Moving Image this week. And we'll catch up with newcomer Jessie Buckley kicking her heels up to the Glaswegian country music tale Wild Rose. Not country and western. Not country and western, exactly. Country music. I'm still to know what the difference is, but, you know, <laughs> didn't quite get into that. <laughs> <laughs> it's the, the, the garb. The garb? Yes. Is it all about the garb? Well, uh, I don't know. <laughs> really, I don't know. Cerise, any theories? Well, alt country, Paul, have you heard of that as well? I have heard of alt country, yes. Yes. Is there alt country and western? I shouldn't think so, and that might be the difference. <laughs> Discuss. <laughs> this is a film show, people. <laughs> have to Rain wait till in. the end for that. <laughs> uh, Triple R, known for its country and western. Uh, <laughs> so the first film we're going to be checking out this week is The Perfection, which was uh, added to Netflix about a month ago and has uh, stirred up some chat all over the internets. We meet Charlotte Wilmore, played by Ellison Williams of Get Out and Girls fame, right after the death of her mother. We quickly quickly, quickly learn Charlotte was a once-ascendant cello prodigy who had to leave her rigorous training at Boston's prestigious Back-Off Academy over a decade ago to take care of her ailing mother, nailing the coffin on her fledgling career. Now free of this responsibility, Charlotte travels to Shanghai to seek out her old teachers, Anton and Paloma, played by Stephen Weber and Elena Huffman, and the girl who replaced her as their shining light, Elizabeth Wells, played by Logan Browning. Charlotte is greeted like family and quickly ingratiates herself to Elizabeth, who even more quickly seduces her and invites Charlotte to join her on a little holiday break around China. After a vicious hangover, the two women head off on their trip, but Elizabeth is feeling increasingly unwell as her symptoms become more and more outlandish. But very little is as it seems, as a wild ride of betrayal, rivalry and revenge swings into motion. Emma, did you find this film's title at all accurate? Or yet another bait-and-switch of the kind this film is so fond of? Yeah, at the start I was wondering how this uh, title was going to play into this film. And that's the thing about... That's the thing that I actually liked about it, which was that it... uh, it seemed to have a red herring narrative for almost the first half of the film. So it's, it is a difficult one to talk about because you don't want to give it away. Um, but I will say in talking about a film in two parts, I guess, I loved the first half. I thought it was excellent. I particularly enjoyed the um, bus trip through China. I don't know why they chose China. There were these oh, I really think I know inter- why. Do you? Or well, economics, obviously. It's the grow, you know, the growing 
biggest growing film market in the world. Every American production is trying to get oh, scenes so set in China. So you're literally saying it's just a, a oh, business decision. 100%. On okay. All right. I was thinking, I, I'm idealistic. I was thinking <laughs> of a creative decision here, but I'll give you that I for think thinking one of the, that way. I have a feeling one of the inve- – I know Miramax uh, produced the film, but I have a feeling other investors might have been yeah, Chinese yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the the sequence, especially, which was a very long sequence, where she um, that one of the characters gets ill on the bus trip, I found profoundly effective. First of all, I think that probably anyone who's travelled a little has felt ill travelling, and it is a very anxiety-inducing experience. Uh, she did re- reach a, a sense of. Uh, or a stage of hysteria that uh, I thought was um, really, really... I I thought it was great. In in terms of drawing the long bow that a horror movie can, it worked very well. Uh, But, yeah, that sequence, I, I was thinking, where can this film go? It has a very definite post-Get Out feel to it. It's like Get Out has kicked, started this new type of horror movie. Um, not entirely different, but still, you know, same, same, but different, shall we say. Notwithstanding that Alison Williams is in there and, you know, is in Get Out as well. So obviously there's going to be parallels drawn there. But I felt that this film did a lot of really ambitious setup, beautifully ambitious setup. I loved it. But then it just didn't know what to do with it towards the end. Um, And it just ended up a bit of a cluster... F-U-C-K. I was going to say cluster cuss like the fantastic Mr. Fox. Mm. Oh. <laughs> I'll I'm go very, with that. I'm very fond of cluster cuss. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, Reese, did you find this to be a cluster cuss? Uh, yeah, in a manner of speaking. it's. Um, I actually like that little, I think, inadvertent pun of yours, Emma, drawing a long bow, a bit of a, no! a cellist ah! gag. I the, the, didn't pick up on that. See, I just do that naturally. Yeah. Because <laughs> um, the cello is... The, the instrument that uh, the, the women play and that this p- very peculiar academy uh, is singularly dedicated to um, uh, establishing excellence in a, a very select few. Uh, it is a difficult film to talk about because um, to talk about much of the film is, to, is huge spoiler territory, but I suppose what I do feel comfortable in saying is that there is a very peculiar device used that I think will alienate some. Um, I mean, it's very common for films of a suspenseful nature to withhold a certain amount of information from the audience. This film does it in a way that really just rubs it in your face that it's been withholding information. And um, and that information is extremely significant, not once, but at least a couple of times. And it, it just uh, it uses a device that um, I have seen before in a certain beardy Austrian director's work that was especially <laughs> reminiscent of. Um, but this plays it for a slight, to a slightly different end. But it's, it's, I think that could really lose some people. I mean, it's, it's a big leap to, to take that on and go with it. But then I, again, I was pretty keen to see what it. they were going to do with it. Yeah, I, yes, exactly. I liked it and I thought that the, it, it had an off... It, it set up... It was it was quite clear. I think only in the second half it was like, hang on, wait a minute. It got it, it got too smart for itself and therefore tripped up on its narrative. Yeah, because then what, what emerges is pretty outlandish, the, um, <laughs> yes. to say the least. 
what a lot of trouble to go to. Um, <laughs> I have to Some say... Some would say unnecessary. I, yeah. was, I was intrigued to watch this because I spoke to fellow film critics, um, Glenn Dunks and Stephen A. Russell. Glenn Dunks loved it. Stephen A. Russell hated it. So I went, okay, I have to see this. And I think I must... I probably fall in, in between. I liked half of it but really didn't like the second half of it. Now that you've put them together, I just anyone that knows Dunks and Russell, I want to see them have their Sis- Siskel and Ebert style show. <laughs> <laughs> I, I really want Dunks and Russell. It was a good thumbs moment. Thumbs up, thumbs down. Yeah, yeah. But at Chicholina Back Bar in St Kilda, it was a good moment. <laughs> That's the venue. <laughs> Set up a camera. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to be quite circumspect here. Um, last week, I... When we dis- or not last week, the last time I was in uh, a fortnight ago, we talked about the film Shame, and I talked about loving films that tackled social issues in genre clothing. In light of this film, I should attach a caveat. I love films which either put that issue up front and deal with it head on, or films that refer to said social issue metaphorically rather than literally. Um, I watched this soon after it premiered and wound up sort of falling asleep during the last 20 minutes. And it was, it's, the film just sort of vanished from my mind. And when I watched it again, I was like, I watched it alert and awake. I'm like, oh, holy crap. Yeah, this keeps getting more and more. Yeah, and the more I think about this film, the more I don't like the way it handled it. Um, like you too, I, I, I really dug the first half as a kind of a you know, intriguing kind of would-be, like, direct-to-video De Palma type (laughs) way of going about it, you know. That's a new genre of film, (laughs) direct-to-video De Palma. should be more of it, Mm. I think. Um, Direct-to-Netflix De Palma. Direct-to-Netflix De Palma. (laughs) And it had this sort of heightened kind of thing and with the queer aspect and the... um, and the way it would, you know, with the chapters and the and the dramatic music, I'm like okay, I'm I'm liking how much fun they're having in setting all this up. And as you're saying, music that, a bit whiplash. Yes, bit yes, whiplash. It's got, a little, there, yes, got a little, got a little whiplash, like a more deranged whiplash. <laughs> um, if you can have that, that's interesting. Yeah. But anyway, <laughs> um, this film manages it, but with the um and you know and like um. Williams and Browning play the situation really, really, really well. As you say, the scene on the bus is quite horrific. <laughs> but also the fact, you know, like, yeah, they really go there, don't they, um, in what she's, you know, about to do. Um, and then, you know, there's that part that's in the tray. But that, but that set up, sorry to interrupt yeah, yeah. you, Paul, though, but that set, up, that set up was really nice. But then in terms of that reflective narrative, like going over over the, you know, retelling something, which is what this film does, it makes completely no sense. No, none. And that's the thing. <laughs> and, and the trailer has this point um, where the Alison Williams character brandishes something and goes, well, you knew it. You know what you need to have to do. Um, brandishes a weapon of some kind and then the Logan Browning character uses this weapon and that's the point when the film goes back mm-hmm. and up until that point it's like yeah like you Cerise I was like how the hell are they going to write themselves out of this like what what's going on here and then what it turns out to be is actually quite it I'll say it clumsily barrels its way into quite sensitive territory and I've read some reviews like some people might get a little I dare I say triggered by this film mm. and I don't think it earns it 
I no. think it, it doesn't earn it at all. And it's like, and suddenly when they're having a bald faced conversation, like this is what happened to us in very serious terms. I'm like, this is not the film we've been watching. This is not the bonkers, crazy, you know, no. it heightened felt, thing that we've been watching. It felt almost like it was trivialising a very serious topic. Or trying to hook into the Me Too movement. Yes. This is something else I kind of feel like. And I know I was looking at the dates and it's the film was commissioned a month before Me Too broke. Yeah. But I can't help but feel like it made its way into the production. And it's also, um, it's one of the first, I don't know, it feels like um, the Miramax logo up front was very pointed felt very telling to me like it felt like this is a film like that this is the new miramax <laughs> okay we don't do anything that the old miramax did and it's very much of um making that point and i just think yeah i just think it, that switch could have been handled so much better and so much more i mean in a film like this you don't want it to be delicately i you know there's a point where uh, and again, I'm trying to be circumspect without spoilers, but there's a point when uh, Stephen Weaver's character approaches Alison Williams's character, and I wanted it to go full um, Brian Usner. Yeah. I wanted something like, I thought, this is going to go into like society territory. I, like, I, that's I, kind I, of where I, I was expecting you. that to go. And I we really wish it had. I wish it had been weirder. Yeah. I wish it would have double, you know, doubled down on the weirdness and made the issue that it's discussing metaphorical and weird and, mm. and, and, and we could read it under that. I think. I think in the end it just ends up really obvious and stale. And, and by the end, look, I mean, there's a... You know, there's the obligatory outburst of violence towards the end, and that's fine, you know. Mm, <laughs> it's, mm. But I think the film's been defanged by that point, and it's a shame because I think I think it does a lot right. Um, but, yeah, I just... Uh, the more I think about that, as you say, I, I, I think it, it's really clumsy and reductive in the way it handles that particular... Mm. Yeah, it's twist. ultimately utterly preposterous <laughs> and, um, and very pat in the way it handles that very sensitive... Um, area and you do wonder maybe did, did Miramax the new Miramax as you suggest <laughs> think this would be some sort of PR exercise in a way it almost feels yeah. like that um, yeah wrapped up in in some sort of you know, not too obvious but actually frankly quite obvious sort of signaling of um, <laughs> different directions and absence of Weinsteininess. Um, I think you've actually hit on hit on something really interesting there that idea of old Miramax new Mira, Miramax old Miramax the first half of the film <laughs> new Miramax desperate tr- scramble to reinvent yeah shall we say yeah, yeah and redeem <laughs> and redeem yeah. yes mm, but, but there's somewhat of an indictment the first half is more interesting um <laughs> yeah that is awkward and unfortunate it is isn't it, it is very unfortunate it is. Uh, <laughs> the perfection the not so aptly named the perfection is now streaming on netflix you are listening to a podcast from community radio 3 triple r fm in melbourne australia Earlier this year, of course, we um, sadly said farewell to the great uh, film director Agnes Varda, um, who, who's uh, having a season of films uh, dedicated to her um, over the next week at uh, the Australian Centre for the Moving Image, now located... Um, all the screenings will be at the Capitol Cinema, um, the recently restored Capitol Cinema, which you uh, attended the 
grand opening of I Cerise? did and I've already attended a couple of Cinematech screenings and um, oh you've been sleeping there haven't you Cerise but that's not for me to announce on the air <laughs> uh, no, yeah it's looking a treat and then some including the salon Ooh, salon I like anything that's called a salon yeah upstairs uh, all the yeah it, it's stunning stunning uh, go to see the cinema as much as the films Oh, how can you say that about this film? You go and see this film in a sewer. <laughs> I would do no such thing. <laughs> Look, Might I know Mel- a little extreme. I know Melbourne's anyway. known for its immersive experiences, <laughs> but there's got to be an endpoint. Okay, cinema sewers. Let's stop it there. So, um, as of the twenty first of June, um, next uh, Thursday, um, this Thursday. Yeah. Um, the season kicks off with Vada's final film, the documentary uh, Vada by Agnes, um, which is an intimate and inspirational journey through Agnes Vada's life and art. Um, and then uh, they're going back to the beginning and showing uh, La Pointe Court, Cleo from 5 to 7, Lions, Love and Lies, Le Bonheur, Daguerreotypes, Vagabond, Jane B for Agnes V, Documenteur, Murmurs, The Gleaners and I. Um, get along to them. They're all great. Um, but perhaps the greatest is Cleo from 5 to 7. After a tarot card reading, filmed in colour when the remainder of the film is in black and white, we meet Cleo, Corinne Marchand, a young pop singer riding a wave of emergent fame after a handful of hit singles. But what she has on her mind today is death. She's anxiously awaiting test results from her doctor, which she's terrified will reveal she has cancer. Told pretty much in real time, Vada, as she does in many of her films, spends the first half hour just observing Cleo's life as she shops with her maid, returns home to change, meets a gentleman caller, rehearses a new song with her lyricist and pianist, all before she decides she needs some time alone as she braces, braces for what she's sure will be bad news. On her journey, she'll go to a cafe, catch up with an old friend and then meet an initially annoying but soon affable young soldier <laughs> on leave from the Algerian War. All the while... Cleo muses about beauty as a way to stave off mortality, is terrified of committing any bad omens, and attempts to reconcile whatever fate may await her. Cerise, did you wander the streets stricken with existential ennui, backed by French torch songs, after revisiting this film? Because I know that's how you roll. That is how I roll. (laughs) Uh, I've seen this film a couple of times over the years, and it is one I'm very fond of. Um, uh, It's... I've, I've actually been to Paris since seeing this but not covered that same ground as far as I know. I believe it's all on the left bank of Paris where she's wandering around and Varda was one of the filmmakers known as the left bank filmmakers. Yes, she was associated with the Nouvelle Vague but she was also associated with this other batch of filmmakers like Chris Marker who shared her love of cats (laughs) and um, Alain René um, and others. So it's um, but then there are, there are real Nouvelle Vague superstars in this film, and uh, this this I was reminded seeing Goddard hamming it up in the film within this film uh, <laughs> that Goddard could actually have a lightness about him. It's bizarre, and not be the twat who stood her up in uh, her uh, penultimate feature film, which was the one uh, Faces, Faces Places. Places. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that story. What was that story? Oh, well, she she went to just go and drop by his place, expecting to find him there, and uh, he just left some smarmy note for her, presuming it would be for the betterment of the film rather than for their relationship. When, you know, perhaps she had an inkling she didn't have all that many years left in her. Who knows? But still, it did not reflect well upon him. His films aren't as good as hers. 
That's, discuss. That's true. <laughs> Nor are they as good as Truffaut's. Um, but he's actually, I agree. He is very endearing in this film in the little yes. goofy uh, and, vignette. And she said she's the only person to be able to get his glasses off. Yes. <laughs> yes. That was the whole point of that little silent mm-hmm. film in a film. What I thought was really interesting um, and uh, is apparently she uh, felt that people would be bored by the film at that at that oh, wow. stage and that's why she decided to insert this little, you know, Claire goes to see uh, her friend Dorothy's, um, you know, partner who's a cinema projectionist and she took this as an opportunity to show this short film. <laughs> I, can't, I, I, I can't see how she thought anyone would be bored with any aspect of this film. And I literally watched it for the first time on the weekend. <gasps> You've never seen it before? Never. And I've been hunting for it. Not hard enough, obviously, but it's not an easy film to see. This is why I think it's a, a real doing a push here for this screening at Acme, and it will look beautiful on the on the big screen. It is not easy unless you go out and you know get a, a DVD copy somewhere, or um, I don't even know how accessible it is locally. Um, and I think this is just a, a perfect cinema um, specimen, basically. I just found immense joy from watching this film. In the way that it works with temporally with time, I thought was incredibly fascinating. And I didn't realise that from five to seven is actually a salacious term. It is. It means like Apparently. sex in the afternoon. It, sh- it, it should be, you know, oh, oh, right. Yes. Okay, I was, I, was, I was going to comment that I've, one bugbear I've always had with this film is like it should be 5 to 6.30. Oh, well, yes, <laughs> yes. But no, 5 to 7 means oh. it's a bit... It means sky, afternoon delight after, type thing. Yeah, hook up time. <laughs> afternoon delight. And... Um, and this, I don't I, uh, look. I feel like she, maybe she knew it would play out in this way because she is just a, a remarkable filmmaker who is known amongst filmmaking circles, but not in the wider, um, the wider vernacular in the way that a Goddard is, and she should be because this is just this amazing little uh, slice of Paris early. You know what is it? Nineteen sixty one. Sixty one. And it was made on a micro budget which Paul you can understand it's just uh, what what she does with this is just incredible I mean she says she made it in Paris because well she lived in Paris it was economics yeah and and it wasn't a creative decision yet this looking at all these faces on the street and there's only a few extras here and there they're actual people on the street and the way that they move through Paris and there's an actual you know you can map it through mm. Paris in in real time and then and compare it to to now this is the way a film i think f- it's it's pure cinema this is the only only film can work in this way and it just the levels of everything the femininity of this film the play on spiritualism and tarot that amazing opening sequence in color which was decided on for color because the real stuff is black and white, which is really mm. interesting, but also that it's all filmed like a flat lay, which is something that's the, you know, the look du jour on Instagram now, you know. <laughs> uh, and this, just this uh, trajectory of the character, Corinne Marchand, who you, she just stands out. She's just like a painting walking through this 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 picture and it's it's meant to be like that she's exquisite to watch she has this incredible white slate 
open plan apartment with kittens running through it. I mean, <laughs> so how, many kittens. <laughs> I mean, how could you not like this film? This is just a, it's a perfect film. It is actually a perfect film. I know my uncle will be listening to this and I know that he's not very familiar with Agnes Varda films considering he's a, a cinephile, cinemaphile. And I'll say, Ross, buy it. You really need to buy this. This is a personal message. It's a recommendation to Uncle Ross. <laughs> Get a hold <laughs> Well, as you say, I mean, this is the most prominent of Vada's uh, narrative features, and it's so hard to find here. Um, it, the, all the other ones at near screening are even harder to find. So it's mm. I, it, I can't recommend getting to this season. Such enough a good season and binging on. It's the these one films. to do. This it is year, absolutely. It is. It is. It's one of the best retrospectives, not only this year, but that you'll you, you'll ever see. Um, yeah, she has such a unique approach. Like I, watching a few, I've been watching a few of her films lately in the lead up to this, and there is the uh, there is that um, that approach that she does. She basically drops you into their character's life for the first half hour or whatever, like in lieu of a first act. You're just kind of following them and watching them and wondering, where's the story here? And then the story eventually emerges um, after that sort of first half hour of just living and just observing because she's... One of the things Vada was most known for was her curiosity and just her interest in people. And that's part of that, what she brings to her films. It's like she's just so... (laughs) As opposed to Goddard who's interested in himself and his own thoughts (laughs) on cinema and... (laughs) the world and politics and what have you. Vada is intensely, the gaze is always the other way. Mm. Um, and it's funny, like you, you mentioned this is made in a micro-budget. Like she literally cast her then partner as Antoine. Mm. Um, Michel Legrand plays the pianist who comes in and plays and he scores the film. Mm. And, he's the, and he's Cleo's pianist in the film. Like it's just, just basic. And obviously f- she was friends with Godard and Anna Karina and cast them. So it's basically this whole... Something else I can relate to, casting your mates, um, you know, <laughs> just having a nice time. I'm cast as a wanted, uh, what am I, a search, uh, you're a missing a, person? You am are. I a missing you're, person? You're yes. on a wanted, uh, you're on a missing poster board. In, in Paul's in. next feature film. <laughs> it's very exciting. Apparitions coming to cinemas 2020. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's very long range. Um, but, yes, uh, I love, yeah, I love the way this unfolds. Um yeah, I, I was absolutely... The first time I saw this, I was so entranced with Corinne Marchand. Um, she's just beautiful and, and, and wonderful. Um, and, you know, there's this... Yeah, little... very narcissistic. Yes, exactly. And... Nice hats, though. <laughs> nice hats. She looks in a lot of mirrors, and this film is a film of reflections in a oh, number of ways. wow. There is one scene in, a hat, in, a, in that hat that shot hat where there's just windows and mirrors, <laughs> and the way that's shot yes. is ridiculous. <laughs> It's so incredible. She tries on hats much better than Julia Roberts in Sleeping with the Enemy, I must say. <laughs> or Pretty Woman. <laughs> yeah. Julia Roberts just mined a whole trying on hats theme there. But, yeah, there's some really lovely... But, yeah, by the time you get to the end of this film, and, you know, for a while you're kind of wondering where is this going, you know. But by the end, it, it is really quite beautiful mm. and and really quite life-affirming and, and, and just gorgeous. Yeah, it's... I highly, highly recommend this film. Now... It's available nominally <laughs> on the Canopy Library streaming service. Yeah, but service. I couldn't. Port Phillip City Library does not have it. Nor does Moreland. And okay. this is the thing that concerns me. I've tried to use Canopy a few times. I would love to recommend it, but everything I've ever searched for on it 
my library never has. Mm-hmm. And I don't understand how... Because they don't have to physically have it in stock. So I don't, I don't know if they have to pay for licences or something. It's a very strange system. So I, the library teamsters at work, I, something I going on. I think you can presume that they would have to pay for licences because that's a norm. I know that the RMIT library has a, a number of criterion releases and this Clio from 5 to 7 was a criterion release quite early on. Mm-hmm. So um, it and uh, a few other... Um, you know, canonical titles like La Ventura and, uh, are, are accessible. Uh, I at least know with an RMIT canopy account, but that's the thing. It's, uh, it you, is individual. Some people from, have RMIT from, canopy accounts. Yeah. Well, <laughs> some people work at RMIT. <laughs> Gotta make a living. <laughs> so if you have an RMIT library account, Clio from 5 to 7 is now streaming on the or Canopy possibly, Library service. Possibly others as well. I mean, everyone is eligible for a, an account at the State Library of Victoria, and I would wager... No, I tried that. No. Yeah, it's not there. Wow. I tried it. Well, they should have other good things. <laughs> You would think. <laughs> Not this film. Go and see it at the cinema. Yeah, definitely. We'll go uh, see everything at the cinema anyway. I mean, that should just yeah. be a given, people. But yes. fr- from the 21st to the 28th, there's one. There's a different film every night by Varda at the Capitol. Go see them. They're they're incredible. And, and you'll thank us for it because she's a beautiful filmmaker and uh, she'll be sadly missed. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. So, Wild Rose, uh, Glasgow isn't the most likely place to find the next American country music star, but that's what Rose Lynn Harlan, played by Jessie Buckley, aims to do. Right off the bat, though, there are a few hurdles. She's just been released from prison. She's got an ankle tag monitoring her movements and two small children who have been without her for a year, cared for by her mother, Marion, played by Julie Walters. Rose Lynn seems uncomfortable around her own kids, and Marion doesn't seem to have much patience for her big dreams, insisting she has to get a job and provide for her family. But soon after being hired by, as a cleaner by the wealthy stay-at-home mum Susanna, Sophie Okonedo, Rosalind is busted singing while vacuuming by Susanna's kids and the woman takes it upon herself to help Rosalind achieve her dream, except for the fact that Rosalind hasn't told her anything about her life as a young mother or a prison parolee. Will Rosalind hightail it out of Scotland to grace the stage of the Grand Ole Opry and leave her family behind? Emma... Did this have you boot scooting all your way out of the dang theatre or did it leave you kicking the dirt? Or should I say, kicking the dirt because it's Scottish. (laughs) Oh, dear. Uh, That needed more time in the oven. Yeah, I'm not even going to try and replicate what you were trying to do. I never stop boot scooting, Paul, but um, <laughs> I think that uh, th- this, is, this is a perfectly fine film, but in terms of what we've probably talked about tonight, it's it's the more unremarkable uh, film. It's interesting to watch in uh, the landscape of music biopics. It almost plays out like a music biopic except, I would say, the end and where it decides to resolve itself. But um, through the whole, t- the whole time I was watching it, and it's a perfectly enjoyable experience. It's a very safe recommendation to make to people. Uh, I was looking at Jessie Buckley and I was thinking, oh, I don't know. I feel I have a relationship with her. How is it? What is it? Where do I know her from? And um, and and I, I had positive feelings of this relationship with her and I realised it was Beast, this film from 2017 or I think it was released here uh, and we covered it on Plato's Cave last year. And she was remarkable in that and I think that she is remarkable in this. She acts her ass off in this. Uh, and she is the 
it's exciting. This film, the excitement comes from seeing her blossom and where she could possibly go, I would say. Mm. Uh, that well, this well, Beast was her first. She's done some telly, but Beast was her first feature. This is her second. Yeah, it's kind of yeah. crazy. Cerise, did she sing in Beast? She got good set of she lungs. She didn't. No, she didn't. A completely different role. That's why I was finding it hard to place her. She started as a talent show contestant. Huh. She she was on really? a show called I'll Do Anything and and sung on that and then got theatre jobs out of that and now she's in film and TV. I was going to ask what she did, yeah. but I don't want to know. Well, that's good because that has a nice Star Is Born actual backdrop to her real life that might might well have informed her casting in this for British viewers who are probably the majority of the audience for this good film. Good point, absolutely. Yeah, I, for, for the moment where when she is busted singing doing the vacuuming and. Uh, it goes into something of a fantasy sequence. I actually thought what this film was going to play out like from that point on was a sort of Ken Loach does Rocket Man, <laughs> which I thought would have been pretty interesting, but then it settled back down again. <laughs> You'd have a lot of fun I playing so that. I wish Ken yeah. Loach <laughs> wow. had directed Rocket Man. You but can, anyway. You could have a lot of fun with that game. Imagine if Ken Loach directed <laughs> X-Men. <laughs> what, name anything. They'd, and all imagine. Be on, they'd all be struggling on the doll. Yeah. Well, yeah, imagine <laughs> that his kitchen sink uh, socialist. Uh, I mean, he's still cracking them out. He had another hit at Cannes this year with another one of his patented feel-bad, wonderful films. We'll get it soon. Don't worry. We'll cover it for you. <laughs> yeah, that we will. Uh, so this, this yeah, occupied a couple of interesting worlds. Uh, it did have that real kitchen sink drama about a working-class folk struggling to get by dreams are they just going to be dashed can they ever be realized is just the very environment conspiring against anyone who dares to dream or are people their own worst enemies and this sort of dynamic plays out throughout the film and uh yeah it's it's um it's a very conventional film i did have that moment where i really thought it was going to be something a little more fantastical and have that life and energy but to be fair as you say emma jesse buckley that's her name is it yeah she she is great she does Great work in this. She is, it's a commanding performance. And uh, Julie Walters, I think, just sort of lets her have it as well. I mean, Julie Walters can act the pants off most folk as well, but she just, uh, you know, she has her moment or two to have a good strop, but generally she's quite contained <laughs> and restrained and seems to have a pretty good Scots accent as well. I know that that's surely not her native accent. No, no, uh, not at all. Buckley's, uh, Jesse Buckley's Irish. No, no, but. Um, uh, and yeah, and, and Julie, Julie Walters is yes. English, yeah. Yeah. In fact, I don't know what her own speaking voice is. I can't think of... Oh, like, the only thing that comes back to mind is uh, Educating Rita, which is a long time ago. Mm. It's funny that we mentioned Rocket Man because I had someone say to me that it would have been uh, the Dallas Bryce Howard role. It was a really weird role for her to play, and I said, surely they should have got Julie Walters <laughs> to play that role. But it, yeah. she was obviously on the set of Wild, um, Wild Rose. Is otherwise busy. occupied. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I really, I like. That's the thing. For a while there, I'm like, yeah, this is the, you know, one of the better BBC TV dramas I've seen this year. <laughs> but then it sort of hit a point where I was like, oh, okay, that's interesting. And then it started going to a place where it's like, oh, I don't know if I'm liking this at all. Like, where it's sort of seemed to be this kind of, ah, oh, concentrate on homes, don't worry about your dreams. And I was getting quite annoyed at it. But I think the resolution it arrives at is really quite nice. Mm. I think it sort of, it's a nice fusion of the two. But there is a lot of drama for the sake... There's a lot of conflict for the sake of conflict in this film. There's a lot of, you know, like when she's 
like, there's moments where it's like, I'm sure Susanna would just send her a text and go, hey, why didn't you tell me about that? Or, you know, or I'm sure, like, mm. that she would have said something about... Like, it just seemed these really odd obstacles in order for the plot it, to It work. is a bit contrived. Yes. Yeah, yeah. When, when Ken Loach sets up his miserablest um, <laughs> milieu for his characters to flail about and struggle in, it's all very convincing, whereas this does seem a little improbable. Mm. And yet there is something still, I think, quite satisfying about that resolution. It does manage to to keep uh, a, some groundedness whilst also embracing a little bit of the fantasy and, and, and putting it in a place where it actually sits that makes some of the contrivances before it just recede into the background and mm. not seem quite so daft. They were a bit daft. They were. I wondered why she um, just didn't take her children along to the rehearsals. Right. That, yeah. was, that was my whole thing. It's like you yeah. can easily integrate both lives. They just seemed really contrived, and that was one of the things that kind of stuck in my craw about this film. But in the end, Jesse Bruckers is wonderful, and it did. You know, it's, it's a nice feel-good film. Wild Rose is now screening at all good independent cinemas. You've been listening to Plato's Cave on 3RRR with Emma Westwood, Cerise Howard, and myself, Paul Anthony Nelson. On tonight's show, we discussed The Perfection, which is now streaming on Netflix. Our retro title, Cleo from 5 to 7, is now apparently streaming on Canopy um, and also screening at Acme uh, later this week at The Capitol and the new release, Wild Rose, which is now showing at all good independent cinemas. You can listen back to the show within half an hour on Triple R On Demand or check out the songs we played on the Plato's Cave page at triplr.org.au right now. You can also subscribe to the Plato's Cave podcast via iTunes or wherever else you find your favourite podcasts. Next week, The Cave will be digging under the Silver Lake, uh, checking out reanimating Toy Story 4, and then uh, getting down uh, with our retro title, the seminal 1990 documentary, Paris is Burning. A huge thank you to Flyin' Faith Everard for editing the Plato's Cave podcast, King Carl Chapman for panelling the show, and Lethal Lisa Kovacevic for producing our show. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.